So when is the rapture going to happen? I'm going to tell you today. This time on Grace and Truth Ministries. Now, actually, that intro kind of reminds me of um, Leonard Nimoy used to host a show that I loved called In Search Of. Everybody ever seen this? His, he'd be in search of, and that's how he'd open it. Like they'd be looking for the Loch Ness Monster and stuff like that. Anyway, uh, I'm obviously not going to be setting dates, but we are going to talk about the timing today and and its application to us who uh, long for it, which all of us do as as has always um, from the very beginning in the church. Uh, believers have longed for the return of the Lord and expected it. So let's open up in prayer. We're going to start in... 1 Corinthians 13, yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, let's begin with prayer. Let's be always, as we approach God's Word, thankful uh, and ready to learn, as God is going to always reveal things that we know um, and confirm those things and support those things and also teach us something new. And so with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the promises in your word of the return of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that we will not always be in these bodies, and that when we get new bodies, they will be incorruptible, or not corrupted. Uh, we, they will be eternal. Uh, this world is not where we will remain. The new world that you will make will be without sin, holy, blameless. And um, we are, are just so looking forward to that, Father, and grateful. We also know that we have to do what you have commanded us to do in this world. Though this body hinders it and this world hinders that, it makes, it makes those things, following your commands, harder to do. But we know that you have given us power that surpasses that which opposes us. And so, Father, we know that you, through your love, have given us a life that is beyond uh, what we could have ever imagined. And we, we pray, Father, that all of us would have our eyes open and enlightened to that hope and what our calling really is about so that we may live an exceeding abundantly life even before we experience the new one. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our hearts would be enlightened by your Scripture. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. So uh, what we have established is the rapture is certain. Uh, the, the fact that we are going to be uh, caught up into the air with the Lord is a certain fact in the Scripture. The Word of God is inspired uh, that's written directly by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, and it's supported by other passages. And we looked at some of those passages yesterday. 
so the rapture in and its imminency could happen at any time. This is super clear in the scripture. Cannot be. Uh, it's it, what I what I mean to say there and emphasize is that it's not it's not evidence pointing towards imminency. It's just stated, right? It's stated as a fact. What we have evidence for, but no clear, explicit conclusion to, is the timing of the rapture. That's not explicitly stated in Scripture. However, as we'll see today, biblical evidence strongly points to, strongly, uh, very strongly, if I could emphasize, you know, you can't say it's 100%, but you say it's, you know, it's really close, is that the rapture will happen before the tribulation the Great Tribulation period, which is uh, in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel called Daniel's 70th week. Uh, And as we'll see some passages today about it, it is the worst time that the earth has ever experienced. Uh, Its its days are numbered. It is exactly seven years, and it is coming in the future. Uh, It is a time that is specifically for Israel, although there will be plenty of Gentiles during that age also. And we're going to do that. So, because in Second Corinthians, Second, sorry, Thessalonians chapter two deals with the uh, a, a specific part of the tribulation, we're going to look at the tribulation as a whole. A lot of time has been spent trying to predict the end of the world. It made me think of that Mayan calendar thing that was out a few years ago, and uh, or uh, Y2K. Remember that. <laughs> Everybody was like at midnight expecting all the planes to crash and and their toasters to blow up or something. I don't know. But uh, a lot of time has been spent in predicting the end of human history. uh, And a lot of it has been wasted time. If God doesn't tell us, how in the world are we supposed to know? By evidence. Evidence is always pointed to an end of humanity just by the the way that we behave and, and the, the way of the world. Uh, if you were, uh, you know, a believer that was like Corey Ten, Ten Baum, uh, whose book I read recently, by the way, they come out with a movie, yeah, that's coming out this week, I think, or this weekend. Um, and, you know, her and her sister, especially her sister, who was so devout as a believer, she was so devout as a believer that she wouldn't lie to the Nazis when she was hiding Jews in her house. Like they said, do you have Jews? And she was like, oh, yeah. And why did she? And they, her family was like incredulous to her. And she was like, well, God tells me not to lie. And, I, you know, if it were me, I would have lied straight through my teeth with a plain face. But she did not. And it all worked out. And in every case, I'm trying to think of Corey's sister's name, but... Uh, it all worked out for her amazingly. She was an amazing believer. And, and she, you know, if you're in a concentration camp in Germany in 1944, uh, it didn't look like the end of the world to you. It'd, you'd be expecting the rapture for sure, as they did in the first century. But unless God tells us, how in the world are we supposed to know? It, every generation has imagined that theirs is the generation. And, uh, you know, and I used to do this in error. I I would look back and say, well, you know, uh, and and then at the same time make fun of, you know, people who recently in our age expect the rapture. And they say, well, they've always expected the rapture. But there's a reason for that. 
The reason is that God has written his inspired word in such a way that every generation would expect it. Because when Jesus gives us birth pangs, is what he calls them, wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, famines, earthquakes, persecution of Christians. Um, isn't that true in every generation? And, you know, the, the, enough is stated for us always to expect it, and not enough is stated for us to know exactly when. And it's brilliant on God's part. He has every generation, for believers who are attentive to it, that are imagining that their time has all the hallmark situations ready and ripe for the return of the Lord. And so far in 2,000 years, it hasn't occurred. So what does the scripture say about when is the rapture? First, we have rapture facts. I think that sounds fun. Fun facts about the rapture. The rapture is certain. Uh, Rapture, rapture, is the Latin word for the Greek harpazo. And uh, this verb is used by Paul in a future passive, meaning we will be in the future caught up. And that's what harpazo means. It means to be caught up. Uh, So that uh, when Jerome translated Greek into Latin uh, for, the Latin, for the Vulgate, which was the main Bible for hundreds of years, um, he used the word rapture, or raptos, which means uh, to be caught up. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it's a certain truth. The church is going to get caught up to the Lord in the air, clouds of the air. Now, clouds are mentioned at a second coming, too. So we're going to see that. That's going to be tomorrow. We're going to see how the post-trib people overlap the pre-trib people and how they don't overlap. And it's going to be you know, very helpful for us to, to solidify our position. Um, the rapture is imminent. Matthew 24, 44, Matthew 24, 50, Matthew 25, 13, Mark 13, 13, Luke 12, 40, and about six or seven other passages. That says it says it explicitly, right? So that's something that it's not evidence; it's explicit. He's coming at any time, and he says you don't know when. So what does he say in, in when he tells there a parable of the stewards that are left behind? The master leaves the house and says, "All right, you guys are in control." And what are they supposed to do? Be alert and watching, waiting for the master to return, doing his will while he's gone. <clears throat> Thirdly, it's for the church, John 14, 1 through 3, 1 Thessalonians 16 through 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Those three patches, passages, sorry, we looked at yesterday. It's for the church. Now, uh, so it just that's plainly what it says. It's a fact. It's for the body of Christ. We meet the Lord in the air and he receives us into heaven, not on earth, but to heaven in John 14, 1 through 3. This is where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and when I come, I will receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And where is he going to be when he comes is heaven. And so um, that is a fact. There's no other way to interpret that. 
so, you know, with these things, and let me back up before we get to the last one, is it's certain, it's imminent, it's for us, and we're going to heaven with the Lord, right? He's going to meet us in the clouds of the air, and then with him, you know, like our leader takes us to heaven, of course, which he is our leader. And then uh, three more, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So if you, as I said, every generation expects the rapture and say, I, I long for the rapture, but it doesn't happen and I die. But you haven't missed out on anything. Because as Paul states in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the dead shall rise first. So actually, uh, even though it happens in a moment, um, that you're not going to, the point of that is, in, in my estimation, is that uh, Christ, God wants all of us who die before the rapture to realize that we're not going to miss anything. In fact, we're going to have a front row seat. Uh, and then we're, we're going to meet the Lord in the air with the living. So when the Lord returns, those who are alive will be transformed, transferred, I guess, and transformed. So it's a, like a almost, not almost, but I guess it is, a, like a living resurrection. And, you know, from that we, and, and from that we wonder. Uh, so up go the living and what? Their clothes and if you saw the movie uh, Left Behind, which I, I thought they did a pretty good job with that, the, the first movie, um, which is from the books by, what, Tim LaHaye and, and, those, and the other guy, I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, you know, the clothes are left behind, glasses are left behind, and tooth fillings and stuff like that, or whatever, your, your fake hip is left on the ground, I guess. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know about any of that. It's fun to think of, but, you know, and all the cars and buses crash into each other and the planes crash. And it makes sense, you know, if you're a, flying a plane as a pilot and all of a sudden you're raptured. Well, you know, if you're an unbeliever on that, on that flight, you're in trouble. Um, so you better get, get with God quick, right? <laughs> And, uh, and so all of that, but God doesn't give us information on that. Maybe he, he raptures clothes and tooth fillings and fake knees and all. I don't know. We're not to know that stuff. It's fun to think of, though. In 1 Corinthians 15 52, our bodies are changed because these bodies are corrupted. As we know, as we get older, we really come to know this. They fall apart. Can you imagine being in this body for millions of years? Even if God could keep it alive, like what in the world? Uh, it'd, be, it'd be terrible. So we, we get, uh, and there's some inferences that can be made from this in our Lord's resurrection, resurrected body. Sometimes people go a little too far with that, I think. But you know, the fact that he is flesh and bone in his resurrection body, as he says, and is things that he is that will be. Anyway, we don't have to know the details about that either. We know that we're going to recognize one another. We know that our, everything that God's going to do for us in eternity is going to be above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine. So if you think it's going to be great, go another extra mile of greatness, and that's what it's going to be. And then the same passage, 1 Corinthians 15:52. it happens in a moment. That word moment is the Greek word atom, 
A-T-O-M. It means, you know, the, an indivisible unit of time. So if Scripture is inspired by God, and it is, then these facts about our Lord's coming are a fact, and they should give us joy. You know, we must not, as we're trying to discern things that, uh, you know, are in some aspects of this hard to discern because God doesn't give us all the details, it, it shouldn't make us miss the application as we're searching. And, and that is that we sit light in this world. We're not, th- this is a temporary place for us. Uh, this body is a temporary place. Not, not that we shouldn't take care of it, because we should. But, um, you know, it, it is not our permanent home. Uh, we should have joy. Every day we should be watchful, and every day we should be reminded of this. I mean, is it any, is it, how should I put, what do I want to say here? Does, when the Lord tells us to pray, when, when the disciples say, teach us to pray, and the Lord says, my kingdom come, are we telling God to bring his kingdom when we want it? No, that would be ridiculous. Even Jesus didn't expect us to understand that, that what, what he's telling us to pray, which I think is probably many applications, but one of them is, that your kingdom could come today. And so why... And in the same sermon where he teaches us how to pray is the, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Right? Don't worry about it. My little children, why are you so worried? Praying that every day would have the desired effect of us, what, your kingdom come. That I'm not going to take things in this world so seriously that they cause me to stress out and worry and be afraid. I should be joyful, watchful, joyful. Living one day at a time. I mean, talk about carpe diem, you know, that Latin term sees the day. It's a believer who knows that his Lord or her Lord is coming any moment. That's carpe diem. And as our Lord said in the same sermon, don't be anxious. So when the rapture may take place is our next line of inquiry. Last time I gave you brief summaries of the various views that teachers have, and good teachers. I guess I could have given uh, some kind of, um, you know, some way uh, out, of the, out of the ballpark theories. But these are main theories. They're, some are weaker than others. And they're all about timing. You know, whether pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. So, all know the tribulation is coming. All know the rapture is certain. You know, when will the rapture happen? The differences between the various interpretations are matters of, you know, people who are taking the same scriptures and interpreting them differently uh, for various reasons. We don't have to know the reasons. We just have to take the biblical data, and then do something with it. So, for instance, I quoted to you yesterday uh, Dwight Pentecost and his work, Things to Come. He said, quote, A number of arguments may be presented in support of the pre-tribulation rapture position. While not all of them are of equal weight, the cumulative evidence is strong. So what does that tell you? From a guy who has studied it for... 50, 60 years of his life, 
that even he, he cannot say that I can tell you conclusively that the Bible states this explicitly. He says a number of arguments may be presented in support of the pre-tribulation rapture position. So arguments and evidence mean not certain, but arguments and evidence may mean very strong. Uh, this, the other, and, and this book is, is wonderful, this work, Footsteps of the Messiah by Arnold Frutenbaum, uh, he states that the scriptures teach that the rapture will occur before the tribulation is clear from several lines of evidence. All right, so several lines of evidence. That's not a scripture that says pre-trib explicitly, which God could have done. He could have done it so easily, <laughs> but he chose not to. I have theories as to why he chose not to do this. Uh, just like, and they, they're kind of the same theory as I have for other aspects of scriptural data that we wish we had, you know. And I think it right boils down to faith. I think God gives us just enough to have the effect that he wants it to have. But at the same time, not having enough or not having an explicit uh, reference in the scripture that says, you know, like something that says Christ is God. Like the, in the New Testament, this is really clear. Like no one, no good expositor refutes the fact that Christ is God. The, the only ones who refute that Christ is God are cults. You know, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and stuff like that. They're out in left field. They've even changed the scripture or added books, like the Book of Mormon, right, to support their theory. But when it comes to expositors of the scripture, they don't deny the things. They don't even fight over the things that are really clear. Like there's a trinity, right? That's super clear. That salvation is by faith. It's super clear. But when it comes to stuff like this, it's not. You know, the timing of it. When God doesn't reveal everything, and it, it requires of us to have faith that God is all things under control and it's going to be awesome. Like, I don't know how it's all going to go down, but it's going to be great. And it's going to be the best because that's all that God does. But at the same time, there's we got to get along. Now, what I mean by that is if there's a pre-trib guy and a post-trib guy, both love the Lord, both love the Scripture, both believe in the inspiration of Scripture, they're just, they, they both are saved. They uh, believe in salvation by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And on and on and on. They're, they are the same when it comes to everything that is revealed. But when it comes to something like this that is not explicitly stated, they can be at each other's throats. And it's secondary. It's not primary, it's secondary. And in this... You know, it's, it's a really a test of our pride. And that's why I'm pressing on this. I could just say, hey, mid-trib, mid, sorry, mid-trib. Why did I say that? A pre-trib is the best. We're going to study it and move on. And it is the best. It's the best theory as to timing, right? Rapture is sure. We're talking about timing. And we could do that. But it, it's, if we... If we don't understand that it's not absolutely explicit, that pride of I know things that you don't know may sneak into our hearts. And I've seen it. I've seen it wreak havoc in people's spiritual lives. 
Right? All, all Satan needs is a little chink in the armor, a little crack in there that he can slide pride into, and pride grows like a cancer. It's important for us to know that we don't know. And that's fine. We don't know 100%. But, there's the evidence. Okay? So when it comes to evidence, I would reject post-trib and mid-trib. I would. And I, um, I suppose that you would too. Because the evidence of pre-trib is clear and it's strong. It's clear and it's strong. And just uh, to push on that last, I, I've said this several times, so I went and looked it up to make sure I got it word for word from, I've uh, referenced this line a couple of times in the last few classes from Lewis Berry Schaefer in his Systematic Theology. Uh, this is in his chapter on divine decrees. And divine, you know, divine decrees is one of those doctrines where I'm trying to go in the past with God before he created anything, and figure out how he determined how everything was going to work itself out. And man, talk about trying to wrap your head upon around something that is so beyond your ability. But anyway, and, and Schaefer humbly states the same thing. He says, this is page two, 233 in volume one, when standing on the border between the finite and the infinite, between time and eternity, between the perfect, irresistible will of God and the important, important. No, that should be impotent. <laughs> That's a typo. Uh, and the impotent, perverted will of man. So let's read that again. Between the perfect, irresistible will of God and the impotent, perverted will of man. Between sovereign grace and hell-deserving sin. Who among men is too proud to exclaim, there are some things which I do not understand? And he, he hits on it just right here with the word uh, pride right there. Because that's what's in view. Is if I think I know things that God hasn't revealed, and then the fighting starts. And the mudslinging starts. Look, I'm not saying that we're supposed to like sit down and get along and be chummy with sinners who reject God's word. And not that we shouldn't witness to them. You know, we, we love all people and, and we are lights to the world. But what I'm talking about here is, is people who, Christians who uh, differ on things that are not explicitly stated. And pride is the problem. All right, look at 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Paul writes, after he defines love, and we spent some time in that passage, 1 Corinthians 4 through 8, love is patient, love is kind, uh, love does not boast, does not brag, is not arrogant. For we know in part, verse 9 says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And the interpretation of, so here's another place where people get at each other. So, um, and I've been very blessed to become friends with a Pentecostal pastor. Now, I do not agree that his speaking in tongues is legit. I do not agree. Uh, well, he, he told me once, he said, I saw miracles, and if you saw them, you'd believe them too. And I'm like, well, he's not a crazy person. 
You know, I've got it's it's wonderful to have gotten to know him before I realized that he truly believed that the gift of miracles is still extant in the church. And yet, when it comes to the love of the Lord, the love of his word, salvation, and we've talked about it quite a bit, and he realizes that he might be wrong. See, so what does he have? Even though he he's Pentecostal, but he realizes in humility that his theory might be incorrect. But he says to himself, evidence points to the fact that these spiritual gifts are still here. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because in this passage, Paul says, if there are tongues, they'll be done away. If there is prophecy, I think prophecy, it'll be done away. And, uh, you know, which would imply all the other gifts. And if, and if we're of the theory that the gifts of tongues, miracles, healing, prophecy were only for the first century, which is the stance that I take, then this doing away with them would be the fact that they hadn't um, lasted past the first century. But a Pentecostal will say that, no, it's true that tongues will be done away, but they'll be done away when the, when the Lord returns. So where do they get that from? Verse 10. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And, uh, you know, come now, now that I've gotten to know some Pentecostals and I know they're not nuts, I'm not saying all of them aren't nuts. <laughs> I think some of them probably are. But, you know, these, these are people that are not, like, super carried away with their emotions or anything. I just say, you know what? I disagree with that interpretation, but I see where you're coming from. Because what does it mean when the perfect comes? And this is debated and debated and debated. You know, not, not you and the guy you meet in the supermarket, thank God, but it's, you know, in the halls of, you know, wherever the, the teachers are and professors are and pastors are and all that. They debate it. Uh, it could mean that um, when the, the Scripture is complete, it could mean when Christ returns, it could mean the eternal state. And evidence here points to the, fa- points to the fact that Paul means when the perfect comes is when the Lord comes. And so if we take it that way, the partial will be done away with. And what do we have in verse 9? We know in part. We don't know it all. And that's for sure. We don't know it all. When will we know? Well, when the Lord returns. Okay. So enough of that. Hopefully that makes us all humble. The pre-tribulation position is that the church will be raptured at any time, that's the imminency, before the start of the Great Tribulation. This, again, should make us watchful. It should make us ready. It should uh, enable us not to be too tethered to the earth. In other words, you know, what, what's the last thing I saw? I have really not been reading news, which is, has been a benefit to my soul and my time, by the way. But I did see the headline that Trump was indicted for whatever again. I don't even keep track of his indictments. It is, I mean, the timing of it before a presidential run, come on. Like, do they honestly think that, they're, that people don't see this? 
And it would be so easy, as I know what so many people do. Then I have, and I thought about this today. The um, the 24/7 news cycle has become a soap opera. That's what it is. It's a soap opera. Are the things happening on? The, my, my mom was addicted to Guiding Light, and I then she got me addicted to it when I was I was like 12, 13 years old, and I'd come home from school. Guiding Light was on at three o'clock. Mom would get home from work just at about 3 o'clock. And, you know, I'd get home from school about them then. And I started watching it with her, and I got totally addicted, you know, to all the characters, what's going to happen, all that. And <laughs> we watched it every day and thoroughly enjoyed it, you know. It was it was a nice camaraderie with me and my mom. But, um, you know, think about it. Is anything true? No. Uh, are they lying to each other? Yeah. Is it all about flesh and sex and hate and vengeance? Yeah. And doesn't it keep repeating itself? The soap opera just keeps going and going and going and going. Like the same guy who's the bad guy is the same bad guy. Like he never repents and ah, whatever. And the news cycle has become that and it has sucked people in. Oh, I can't say that. Drawn people in. <laughs> It has drawn people in. They just want to see what's happening next. And, ooh, they're going to get it. And, ooh, you know. Seriously? This is not our world. Not that we don't live for our nation and our communities and our neighborhoods. Some people in Dallas, Oregon, there's a little, you all know it. If, if, if you haven't been here and you're, you're listening Dallas, Oregon is like a little town of Mayberry in, uh, in Oregon. It's a tight community. And some group, a church, uh, tried to sneak in a homeless camp in Dallas, right near the high school. And, and you know, I'm compa- I, I try to be as compassionate as I can, uh, but um, you know, they want to put right next to a school a massive homeless camp of and, you know, problems come with that. If you live here in Oregon, you know the problems that come with that. And, uh, you know, the whole community, the community is a very Christian community. There's like 10 churches in Dallas, and they get pretty full on Sundays. And, uh, you know, people are compassionate, but they also want to protect their children and their community. There's nothing wrong with that. And say, well, hey, you know, we're heaven bound. We don't live for this world. What the heck? Throw in the homeless and their drugs and their their crimes and put them in the midst of my children, you know, and and put it in the hands of the Lord, right? Right? No. No. God didn't tell us to be stupid. Not at all. So, we're not tethered to this world. That's the application of the rapture, the imminency of it, and the fact that we're not going to go through the tribulation. So we, do we have to worry about trying to handle a world that is under the wrath of God? And according to, can I say for sure the church won't go, like 100%, it's clear, Bible says, the church will not go through the tribulation. You're not going to find that verse. But you're going to find multiple verses that point to that. Okay, enough for me on that. First, There's never a mention of the church 
in passages that discuss the tribulation. Never. Actually, not once is there. In passages that are about the tribulation, is the church mentioned. Now, is that conclusive proof? No. It's actually an argument from silence, which is, wouldn't even hold up in, a, in court. But it's just, it's the first of several things that we're going to see. Um, and, by the way, kind of cool here is uh, this manuscript, uh, which you can't see. It's really tiny. You'd have to see it. But that's 2 Corinthians. That's a very old manuscript of 2 Corinthians. Uh, and, uh, you know, in none of these, in no tribulation passages do we see the church. The church began at Pentecost. The church began when the Spirit baptized men and women at Pentecost. Um, but also in the book of Revelation, which has 22 chapters, uh, the church figures prominently in chapters 1 through 3 in the book of Revelation. Uh, the church is very prominent in there. And then in chapters 19 through 22, at the very end, we see the church again, uh, prominently. And uh, in chapters 6 through 18, which deal directly with the tribulation, church isn't mentioned once, not once. So that's other. It's just evidence, right? It's not conclusive proof, but chapters 1 through 3, and we have chapter 4 and 5, which is Jesus in heaven and the angels, the 24 elders uh, are singing, Worthy are you, O Lord. And then starting in chapter 6 through 18, which in the book of Revelation deals directly with the tribulational period, we don't see the church at all. And then in chapter 19, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is where? In heaven, we see the church again. So that's kind of an indication. Go to Luke 21. Second point. The tribulation will come upon all who are on the earth. But here the Lord says, and this is really one of the first mentions of this in the scripture, that some will escape it. So notice there's two things here. The tribulation will come upon all who are on the earth, but some will escape it. So if it's going to come on all who are on the earth, the ones who escape it can't be on the earth. And this is uh, further indicated in the passage. So look at Luke 21, 34. Be on guard. There's the application of all of this. Right? The faithful steward has to be doing the will of the master while the master's gone. Right? We're not sinless. God Almighty, we're not. But we are called to do something. Each of us has a ministry. Each of us has a calling on our lives that God has graciously given. And we've got work to do. So he says, be on your guard. So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation. That word means wasted time. That's prodigal. You know, the prodigal son taking the things of his father and going and wasting them. And drunkenness. Like, and both of these terms are used just by Paul in Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of all the earth. But keep on, on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place 
and stand before the Son of Man. Now, during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called the Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early in the morning and come to him in the temple and listen to him. And so as he's teaching, he warns them to be on guard and that a time is coming, which for some people it's going to take them by surprise, suddenly like a trap. But for others, and he teaches, he tells them to pray that they may have strength to others, they will uh, be, uh, sorry, they will escape all these things. And notice, they will stand before the Son of Man. The means of escaping the tribulation here is to not be on earth, but to stand before the Son of Man. Now, to be standing before the Son of Man at that time is akin to John 14, 1 through 3, as we saw, that I come to receive you to myself and you will be with me uh, forever in heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 16, and 17, that will be caught up in the air with him in the clouds of the air, and thus we will be with the Lord forever. And so that's standing before the Son of Man. Again, it's not an absolute conclusive passage, all right, there's some things in here you say, well, you know, he doesn't come right out and say that the church won't go through the tribulation. But added to the fact that the church is never mentioned in a tribulation passage, that the church is not at all seen in Revelation uh, chapters 6 through 18. And here we see that the tribulation or this uh, <clears throat> the day of the Lord is going to, no one on earth is going to escape it, and that some will escape it who stand before the Lord. So that would mean, or point to the other passages that point to us being caught up in the air. And so again, the application of this is, you know, don't be on your guard, but also don't be afraid. As Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, comfort one another with these words. Like we should be comforted. The wrath that is going to come on the earth, which when we study the tribulation, I know you know of it. And, and I, I've learned some more about it. It's just awful. It's absolutely awful what's going to happen to this world. When God become when the, the land slain, the lamb slain takes on the role of the lion of Judah. And comes back to judge the world. All right, go to 1 Thessalonians 1. Thirdly, the church has promised to be delivered from the wrath to come in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And the church has promised to be delivered from the wrath to come. It doesn't say tribulation exactly, but this comes pretty close in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So let's look at verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Meaning he's complimenting the Thessalonians for their, their graciousness, their love, and their work of faith. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Right? Notice that. From heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. All right. So what's the wrath to come? 
Well, you'd have to go searching in all the other scriptures for where God mentions his wrath. Notice it's wrath to come, so it's future. It's future wrath. And God uses wrath against sin. Uh, it's, well, he does, but he uses the word wrath in the scripture concerning sin. He's going to have wrath on sin. Uh, but these are believers, and wrath on sin is, is always, you know, it's not just to come. There's also the wrath that is with judgment. That God uses the word wrath with judgment quite a bit. And are the Thessalonians, is he saying to them, he's going to rescue you from being judged for your sin at the end of time, which is the great white throne judgment. And that wouldn't fit at all because um, they're believers. None of us are going to be at the great white throne judgment because our sins are paid for through the blood of Christ. So it wouldn't be that either. And, of course, Paul wouldn't be promising them that from here on out, your lives are going to be swimmingly good with no problems. right? But this is talking about the wrath of God. Uh, they're certainly going to face persecution, as we know that they did. So, in this case, the wrath to come points to the wrath. Now, this, the wrath, God uses the word wrath with tribulation all, uh, quite a bit, especially through the book of Revelation. That the wrath of God is poured out. That's why there's seven bowl judgments where God is pouring out bowls, or the angels are, of the wrath of God upon the earth. And so, we would say the evidence points to that God's going to preserve them from the wrath that is the tribulation. But then, in the same book, if you go to chapter 5, Paul mentions something very similar and is a little more explicit. In, uh, go to 1 Thessalonians 5.1. That the church has not been appointed to, the, to wrath or to the wrath of the day of the Lord. And this phrase, day of the Lord, includes the tribulation. Uh, some expositors think that it is the tribulation. And you know, there's some evidence for that. Uh, the day of the Lord is also one of those things that's hard to truly explicitly nail down. But uh, it includes the tribulation for sure. Uh, the day of the Lord is not in this age. This is not it. And you can see it here as well as many other passages but look at 1 Thessalonians 5.1. <clears throat> now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anyone to, of anything to be written to you. And this is one of those places where, you know, for us, for us who want to understand the Scripture like we do, we kind of wish Paul would have written it out anyway. You know, what, what are these times and epics? Paul says to them, you don't have anything to be, need to be written to you. And he would only be writing that if he had already explained it to them when he was there, when he was at Thessalonica. So he said, basically, verse 1 says, I already told you this, so I don't have to write it down. And we're like, ah, oh, I wish you would anyway. That would help us out a lot. But he doesn't. And this is one of those things where you see in this line, God is saying, look, I could have written this down, but I didn't. You see that? I could have totally written all this down for you, but I didn't do it on purpose. So don't fret, little children. Yeah, there's some things that you don't know. It's okay. 
For you yourselves know, verse 2, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Right? Unexpected. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Now we saw in Luke, we just saw in Luke 21 that the Lord said some will escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Now notice, he's not here talking about personal sin. You might say, well, yeah, yesterday I had a pretty dark day, or last week I had a pretty dark week, and I, you know, I didn't repent of anything or confess anything, and I just ran around and sinned. And that would be, you know, it was like being in darkness, as James writes. But here he explicitly states, we're not of that. And what that means is that all believers, carnal or spiritual, are sons of light and daughters of light. So he says, here's the application. Since we are of the light, verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do. Now, notice this word sleep. This gets us back to what Jesus said in Luke 21 also, is that when it came upon them like a thief in the night, like um, they weren't expecting it. They were saying peace and safety, as the Lord said in Luke 21. It came upon them suddenly. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. And no matter whether, and awake and asleep there at the last part doesn't mean <clears throat> alert and unalert. I mean, it's clear. He, he says that we are of the day. We don't have to worry about being those who are taken by surprise by this, but uh, awake or asleep means alive or dead in the context of what he just mentioned in, uh, in chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. In verse 9, Paul tells them that they're not destined for wrath. The antecedent to wrath is the phrase, day of the Lord. And that includes the tribulation. See, this passage is quite clear in evidence. Again, if right in this passage, Paul just wrote out the church will not go through the tribulation at all and will be raptured before it. Case closed. There's no arguments. There's no... There's no need to do what we've been doing for two classes. But God didn't, and he purposely didn't write it that explicitly. And now to me, there could be many reasons for this. Perhaps he just wants us to search and search and search. And as we're searching for answers, we're learning more and more. He also wants us to have faith and to trust. You know, I don't know everything my father's going to do, but I know it's going to be awesome. So wrath in this passage refers to the tribulation or the day of the Lord. Uh, notice the line before 5.1 is 4.18 where he says, Comfort one another with these words. And comfort with what words? 
the promise of the rapture, which is 15, through 15, 16, and 17, caught up in the air together with the Lord. Uh, and he says, comfort one another with these words. But then in 5.1, he says, uh, actually, the, literally, it's, um, the Greek says, but concerning, or and concerning, uh, which is translated now as. And, and so he's contrasting. He's moving in a contrast in chapter 5. Comfort one another in these words, and then in 5.1, in contrast, the day of the Lord is going to come upon some, and they are not going to be comforted, right? because the tribulation is awful. It will come upon them like a thief in the night. Not us. And then we have this, in verse 8, this armor. Look at the armor in verse 8. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith. Right? I don't know all God's going to do exactly, but I have faith, love. I'm going to love the brethren, love my Lord. And as a helmet, which protects my head, obviously, is the hope of salvation. And this helmet, which is the hope of salvation, speaks of not your salvation from the lake of fire because they're already saved and it's very it's unlikely that Paul means that what Paul means here by salvation is our deliverance and that's the greek word sozo means not just it's deliverance from the lake of fire that you know when we believe in Christ as our savior but here it is most likely referencing the fact that you know we're going to be saved from this wrath and note, you know, that's to be comforting in 4.18. So comfort one another with these words. You're going to be delivered. And this adds like a nuance. You know, I've always looked at the helmet of salvation was you and I, we know that we're saved. We know we have eternal life. We don't have to fear death. We, our eternity is booked. It is, you know, it is unchangeable. We have eternal security and that it's going to be wonderful. But here's another aspect to the helmet of salvation. I'm going to be delivered from the wrath to come. You know, we think things are bad in this world, and depending on where you are, you know, your location and your circumstances, you know, things could be very bad. You know, I, I read a book not too long ago about uh, does cardboard villages in India where the, undesi- where the untouchables live. And it's god-awful. I saw another headline uh, just yesterday that said um, a million girls have disappeared in India in the last few years. Nobody knows where they are or what happened to them. A million. I, you know it ain't good what happened to them. We're good to live in that world. But and, and, you know, the application of this, if you were a believer in that world and you could hear these words, imagine what they would do for you. How they could set you free from your situation. But for us who don't have a really bad situation, comparatively, it still sets us free. That as bad as this world may become, it's going to get awful here. Awful. Like people, it's even hard for us when we look at passages about it, and we're going to close with that. Um, 
You know, this is a time of, notice the tribulation, is a time of darkness. So, um, and suddenly your brethren not in darkness, right? But verse 4, but brethren, you are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. We're not in darkness. The day of the Lord is referred to as a period of darkness and of night. That doesn't mean that there's no sunlight for seven years. It just means that it's awful. So we're close here. We just got a few minutes left. Go to let's see first person who can get to Zephaniah. <laughs> When's the last time you looked for Zephaniah? I, I can cheat because I just type it into my computer and it pops up. One of those minor prophets. Uh, but you know the minor prophets. Um, and not just them. By the way, they're only called minor prophets because of the size of their books. Their books are small. They're not like AAA prophets, you know, and like Isaiah and Jeremiah are in the prose. That's a baseball reference if you don't know. But Zephaniah 1.14. Good job, Deb. You win. You had popped it up on your phone. You know, that's probably what I would have done. Or quick. I remember when I was in Bible class, I'd be like a quick trip to the glossary and hope no one was watching. But anyway, Zephaniah 1.14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Right? So same phrase. You see this quite a bit. We'll see this uh, when we do the tribulation. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. The day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress upon men so that they will walk like the blind. And that is also a reference to darkness. Because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Didn't Jesus say no one would escape? All the inhabitants of the earth. It's not just Israel, right? It's not just Jews, Gentiles, it's everybody. What does that sound like? Awful. That day is coming. Zephaniah, the Lord said through Zephaniah it was coming quickly. Yeah, that's always always the case in the scripture that God's quickly is usually a few thousand years, but notice the word darkness here. It's also, as you see on the board, it's in Joel. Joe is actually our abbreviation of Joel, which is unfortunate. But Joel uh, chapter 2, for the sake of time, we won't read it, but you can read it yourself. It's the same thing. You know, very, and, and in Joel chapter 2, 
He says, uh, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Darkness and gloom. But in our passage it says, we're not of darkness. Sons of light. Sons of day. And that passage says that we're not destined for wrath or appointed to it. So we're not of the day of the Lord. We're not appointed to it. So these passages that we've seen today in Luke 21, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, and I think, is that it? Yeah. That we're not, all evidence points to the fact that the church is not going to go through the tribulation. So, How would we escape it? Stand before the Lord, as Jesus said. And that would point to the other passages that say we're going to be caught up in the air. So we've got six passages so far that we've looked at. All point to a pre-trib rapture. They don't say it explicitly, but they all point to it. And I think we can say with confidence that since it is imminent, we're not looking for any signs that it could happen at any time. The application to us is, look, we're not going to go through this wrath. Uh, We should be watchful. We should be ready. We should be looking for our master to return any day. Do we want, and this is a question he poses to us. It's not like you're not going to lose your salvation, but we are rewarded. That's another thing we'll have to look at is the judgment seat of Christ. We are rewarded for being good stewards. And a good steward is always doing, trying to do the will of the master until he returns. And when he returns, he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the promises that revealed to us your coming. Thank you that your word points to uh, pretty conclusively, almost conclusively, that we will not experience the tribulation, that we'll be delivered from it. And so, Father, when we think and look at this world and we say to ourselves how bad it is becoming, let us know that comparatively it's not even remotely as bad as it will be. And we will not experience that. We thank you that you will remove us and that we will be delivered or saved from the wrath to come. May we apply by alertness, readiness, and doing your will until our Lord returns. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.